a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Hey, my name's Steve Hall, and I want to thank you for joining our Bible study today. Before we get into today's Bible study, I would like to invite you to come to check out our Standing Firm Bible study class in person. We're at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. We meet in the downstairs fellowship hall of the auditorium building at 10.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings immediately after the 9 o'clock worship service. Here's a little map for you. See the little red lines? <laughs> Notice if you're in the auditorium, just follow those red arrows. If you're in the back, go straight down that hallway behind you to the stairwell. If you're near the front of the auditorium, you can go out the left door, and I mean left as you're sitting in the auditorium looking toward the pulpit and the choir. Go to your left, go out that door, all the way down to the end of the hall, keep to your left, all the way down to the stairwell, then turn right and go down the stairwell. We meet in the fellowship hall around the tables near the kitchen downstairs. If you have trouble with stairs, there are men driving golf carts near the entrance to the auditorium building at the crossover there who will be glad to give you a ride to a door that enters the building on our level, so you won't have to do any steps at all. We're a co-educational class, men and women both invited. We're for all ages, doesn't matter how old or how young. Children and youth are certainly welcome, but some children and youth actually prefer to go to the children and youth classes, which meet at the same time we meet, more on their level. Dress, totally casual. Class members are certainly encouraged to participate in the Bible study, ask questions, engage in conversation. But listen, if you happen to be kind of shy, we promise we're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to ask you to read. We're not going to ask you to pray. We're not going to ask you any specific questions directed to you. It isn't unusual for class members who are kind of shy just to not say anything at all once class gets started. So that's your choice. So I'm just saying, please don't feel intimidated if you happen to be the shy type. I know sometimes the first meeting is kind of tough for the shy people. But there's never been a time when it's been more important for God's people to meet in small Bible study fellowship groups in order to encourage each other. We've got to stand firm in his truth. We've got to stand firm on his word. These are very confusing days we're living in. You know that. So we'd love for you to join us and just see for yourself what God's doing in our class. If you'd like more information... Go to AboundingJoy.com. There's the web address right there on the screen. You can click on the Standing Firm Bible Class menu item when you get there. You may want to hit pause right now or do a screen save to get, make sure you get the spelling right, but you can learn more information about us there. Now, here's today's Bible study. I hope and pray it helps you grow stronger in our Lord Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of His Word and of His will for your life. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study again today. We've come to Romans chapter 3, verse 19. And we're getting very close now to a great turning point in the book of Romans, turning a great corner. We're going to get there today. In fact, let's read it. This is God's word. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So it says every single mouth will be stopped because everybody is under the law. Some of us have a very clear and specific written law in God's word. 
But all of us have the essence of God's law written in our hearts, whether we have the written word or not. And as we saw so clearly last time, we are all guilty. The whole world is accountable to God, every single human being. Verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Everybody's guilty. Satan and the world will try to offer all kinds of fixes for that guilt. We've looked at some of that. Many, many people will think, well, if I can just do more good than bad, I think I'll be okay. Or they think if I can just do more good than most people around me, I I think I'm going to be fine. Or they'll think if I can just do more good than I used to do, maybe I'll be okay. But that's all satanic thinking. None of that's from God. Because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. We just can't be good enough to justify ourselves. None of us. Of course, many try to drown their guilty conscience with alcohol or drown their guilty conscience with drugs and mental confusion or maybe by being in crowds of people where there's a lot of noise and a lot of people who will agree with us or affirm us in our sin. A lot of people try that to assuage their guilt. But we cannot keep the law to fix our guilt. It's too late for that. We've already blown it. The law can teach us how badly we've blown it. He says it here in the last part of verse 20. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law can show us what our sin is, but it can't fix it. The law can and does teach us about God's requirements, but it can enable us to meet those requirements. I think we get that now, right? Now, if the book of Romans had ended right here at verse 20 in chapter 3, we'd probably think, wow, this is the saddest, most depressing thing I've ever read, (laughs) I guess. But of course, God had no intention of stopping there. These were important chapters. These are important verses. We've got to understand this before we move on. But at last, we have reached those two wonderful words that begin verse 21. But now, (laughs) but now, Before we can ever come to Christ, we must see ourselves as sinners. But more than that, it's not just enough to see ourselves as sinners. We have to see ourselves as sinners without any hope. We have no hope. And God has used Paul to do a very powerful job of helping us see ourselves like that, seeing that truth about us in these first three chapters up to this point. Verse 21, but now, yes, We certainly were sinners, but now, (laughs) yes, we were without any hope, but now, and yes, up until now, all was darkness, depression, death, discouragement, hopelessness, but now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. But now the righteousness of God has been revealed and it's apart from the law. It's the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. I mean, it's worth reading those words over and over. These are incredibly wonderful words, especially to hear them after everything God's revealed to us in these first three chapters up to this point. 
And interestingly, Paul underlines that this is not really new. I mean, it's good news because most people haven't gotten it yet. They haven't understood it yet. It hasn't sunk in their hearts yet. But in truth, Paul's going to point out, it was planned from the foundation of the world. So God gave us the law and the prophets, in other words, the Old Testament, what the Jews call the Tanakh, to point us to his way of righteousness. And ultimately, to point us to Jesus and the cross, his way of righteousness. It's all all the way through the Old Testament. It's all right there. God pointed to Jesus when he said to Satan, Genesis chapter 3, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Joseph pointed us to Jesus when he said to his brothers, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That's a type of what Jesus is going to do for us. God pointed us to Jesus when he established the Passover, when he sees the blood of the Passover lamb on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you, pointing us to Jesus. The scapegoat in Leviticus points us to Jesus. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, that's the scapegoat, and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. The goat shall bear all their iniquities. That points us to Jesus. The women in the little city of Bethlehem in the time of the judges pointed us to Jesus when they said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel, pointing us to Jesus. Moses pointed us to Jesus when he said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen, pointing us to Jesus. Even before Moses wrote what he did, Job pointed us to Jesus when he wrote, For I know that my Redeemer lives, my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. David pointed us to Jesus when he prophesied his crucifixion. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. He's pointing us to Jesus. Isaiah pointed us to Jesus, to the birth of Jesus, when he wrote, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And Isaiah pointed to Jesus when he said, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. He also pointed to the death of Jesus as his atoning sacrifice for our sins. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that's before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And, and we could go on and on. God filled the Old Testament with pointers to Jesus. He made it clear from Genesis 3 all the way through the Old Testament that God himself would provide the way, the way to solve our guilt problem. And it would have to be a way, listen now, this is important, 
It would have to be a way that did not compromise in any way his own character and his own righteousness and his own justice. Here in this passage we're looking at right now, we're not quite there yet, but when we get to verse 25, he says he had passed over former sins. God passed over former sins. But God can't be a just God and just overlook sin. But that's his point, you see. He didn't just overlook sin. He paid for it himself on the cross. So now we can receive the gift of his righteousness without God compromising his own holiness and his own justice by trusting what Jesus did for us on the cross. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's summarizing here what he's already made very clear. There's no distinction based on our Jewish heritage or our Gentile heritage. We're all in the same boat. We were created to bring glory to God, but we don't do what we were created to do. Sins mess that up. We get too distracted by all the things that we enjoy doing apart from God or things we feel like we have to do apart from God. We've got our jobs, right? We, some of us have our hobbies. We have our televisions in the day we live in. Now, we have our cell phones. We have our football. We have our basketball. We have our sitcoms. We have our education to take care of. We have our families. We just want to have a little fun. We're just trying to have a little fun, just a little bit of entertainment. We're just trying to make a little money. We just want to have some new experiences out there. Now, now please don't get me wrong here. We can do many of those things for the glory of God. You realize that, I hope, and we should. But the temptation for us, even Christians, is to be just like the world and get so absorbed by those things that we just, for the moment, forget all about God. We're all guilty. Even as Christians, we can end up spending huge amounts of time, huge amounts of money for our own selfish benefit, but not for the glory of God. There's a danger, always a danger there. But listen, before we came to Christ, we were totally absorbed in those kind of things. There was no thought whatsoever for what might bring glory to God. That was the least last thing in our mind. <laughs> and there is an enormous danger for many, many sad people all around us that they will be so preoccupied with things like these, things that have absolutely no benefit for their eternity, that they will totally neglect God until it's too late. John Piper told a story one time about his dad. His dad was a Christian evangelist, and his dad used to tell a story that Piper said when he was a little boy, he would hear his dad tell this story. He said, it always gripped me, had a, had a huge impression on Piper as a young boy. Here's the story his dad told. There was an eagle at one point who soared around in southern Canada looking for prey. And one day that eagle spotted a dead, decaying goat on an ice floe that was floating down the Niagara River. And it looked like easy pickings. So he swooped down, the eagle did, and began to help himself to that dead goat. Now, the eagle knew he was floating toward the falls, but he had total confidence in himself. He knew he had strong wings. And at the right moment, he would just spread those wings of his and fly away before they ever reached the falls. And sure enough, when the ice flow approached the falls, the eagle, feeding on that dead, decaying goat, spread his great wings to fly away, but his talons had become frozen to the ice, and he was too late, and he plunged to his death. 
there is a danger that people will become so preoccupied with dead, decaying things in this world that they won't realize their talents have become frozen to this world. And they'll see no need to seek the glory of God until they end up plunging to their eternal destruction. So we should be filled with eternal gratitude for the first two words of verse 21. But now, but now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now look at verse 24 and 25. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. <laughs> there are so many important words in these two verses. And we don't have time to cover them in great detail, but there are three words of enormous significance that I want to make sure we take time to look at before we stop today. These are three giant words that as Christians, we must make sure we understand as well as we possibly can. Make sure we get as good a handle on these words as we can. First, let's look at the word in verse 25, propitiation. Propitiation. The Greek word is hilasterion. Hilasterion. It's the same word God uses in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5 to refer to the mercy seat itself. You remember that golden top of the Ark of the Covenant where the blood was sprinkled once a year on the Day of Atonement by the high priest who could only enter that place once a year on the Day of Atonement? Above it, the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. The mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Same word. Now look at that context again. In Romans 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a, there it is, propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, some of you, when you hear me read those words or you look at those words on your screen, you probably have a pretty good idea of what he's talking about here. You studied this before. But I do think it's one of these words that many, many Christians don't quite have a really good handle on yet. But it's an extremely important word. Propitiation, that big word, describes what Jesus did by dying on the cross to bring us to God. And there are four elements to any propitiation. Number one, there is an offense of some kind that has to be taken away. Number two, there is an offended person who needs to be pacified. Number three, there's an offending person who is guilty. And number four, there's a sacrifice. And of course, the offense is our sins. And the offended person is God himself. And the offending persons are all of us. And the sacrifice is the Son of God and the Son of Man, God the Son, fully God, fully man, dying in our place on the cross. Some translations translate this Greek word as expiation, expiation instead of propitiation. And expiation is a good word, but it's really not quite good enough for what we need to hear God saying here. Expiation focuses only on the removal of our guilt. And of course, Jesus did remove our guilt on the cross. But expiation does not 
just that word expiation, does not point us to the offended God of wrath whom, who must be propitiated. But some people don't like the word propitiation because of that. They, they don't like to think of God as a God of wrath who has to be propitiated. They're the people who say, oh, no, 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 no. My God's not a God of wrath. He's a God of love. But of course, the Bible clearly teaches that not only is God a God of love, he's also a God of wrath. He must be, if he's true to his holiness and true to his perfect hatred of sin, he has to be a God of wrath. We've looked at that. There are 20 different Hebrew words that refer to God's wrath in the Old Testament. 20 different words. And those words are used over 580 times in our Bibles. God wants us to understand about his wrath. And I know we've already looked at this in the early chapters of Romans. Remember 118, Romans 118, for the wrath of God. There it is. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Jesus himself said, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life. But what? The wrath of God remains on him. The reason some people have problems with God being a God of wrath is they begin with the philosophy and reasonings of a fallen human mind instead of beginning with Scripture. We have to keep reminding ourselves again and again and again, sin is not trivial. It's no trivial thing to God. God hates all sin, and His wrath is constantly directed on it. Now, I know to our contemporary ears, the word wrath might imply something that's not really true. Wrath does not mean uncontrolled rage. <laughs> we tend to use it that way in our day, I guess. doesn't mean God's always in a fiery, uncontrolled passion. Not at all. It means God has a finely focused fury and anger towards sin. His anger burns against sin always. He's totally opposed to it. He hates it with a perfect hatred. One of our favorite sayings, I bet you said this, I've said this, and there's nothing wrong with it. God hates sin but God loves the sinner, right? That's a true statement. I use it a lot, but we just need to be careful when we use it. We need to make sure other people understand it because it can be a little misleading because it's not like the sin God hates is over here and the sinner God loves is over here. <laughs> Sin's always attached to sinners, right? <laughs> Sin's not a substance that you can separate from a person. Sin is what a person does. Sin is actually the condition that we're in. We're in a state of sin. And we can't just glibly separate sin from the sinner as if they were two separate things. God has to deal with sinners if he's going to deal with sin. He can't deal with sin somehow in some kind of isolation from the sinner. You see what the point here? And God wants us to understand that without Christ, this picture is truly terrifying for us. On the one hand, we have us, men, the sinner, unable to become righteous. On the other hand, we have the holy God. His nature is just and perfect. He can't tolerate our sin. So the death of Jesus Christ on the cross was God's way of satisfying God's justice and God's mercy all at one time. God could not simply be merciful and just ignore our sins. That would mean he wouldn't be just. He's a just God. But if he hadn't provided a way for us through Jesus, he wouldn't be a merciful God. You see how that works? He's both just and he's merciful. So here in Romans 3.25, we learn Jesus is the one whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So God could be both just 
and merciful, just and the justifier. <laughs> now again, we have to be very careful about the way we think and talk about what God's actually done here in this act of propitiation, because we mustn't get the idea that Jesus somehow stepped in between God and man and changed God's mind. That's not what happened. Because God the Father and God the Son are and always have been of one mind and one heart. God knew from the beginning what he was going to do to satisfy his justice and demonstrate his mercy in Jesus. The Bible tells us Jesus is the Lamb of God, slain from when? From the foundation of the world, Revelation 13. God had declared many times over and over again in the Old Testament that he would pour out his wrath on sin. And God's justice demanded that God himself would become a man in the person of Jesus Christ to die to satisfy the just demands of God that sin be punished. Jesus, dying on the cross, shedding his innocent lifeblood, receiving on himself the full fury of the wrath of God is the propitiation for our sins. So propitiation is a hugely significant word and we need to try to get our brains wrapped around it. Now back in verse 24, we also read that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So there are two giant words I want us to look at there in verse 24. First, let's look at that word redemption. The Greek word is apolutrosis, apolutrosis. The word redemption literally means the recalling of captives from captivity through the payment of a price for them. Same Greek words used in Mark chapter 10 when Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to what? Give his life as a what? Ransom. There it is, same word, redemption for many. Peter used that word in his first letter, knowing that you were ransomed, there it is, redeemed, ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We see this word in Hebrews chapter 9, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing what? An eternal redemption. There's the word again. And God's telling us that not only were we alienated from God because of our sin, not only was a propitiation necessary, of course, we've already seen that, but in that state, we were also slaves of sin and slaves of the devil. Paul's going to deal with that more fully in chapter 6. Let's look at it just briefly right now, kind of a glimpse ahead here. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, there it is, slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Verse 20, he says of chapter 6, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And back in chapter 3, verse 24, did you notice the word through, through the redemption? We're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. That point's very important. Salvation is a free gift. Yes, it's certainly free to us, but it was extremely costly to God. Our salvation could not be obtained just by God making a statement. 
God could create the world by making a statement. He just spoke the word and things came into existence. It's just created power and genius and artistry, magnificence. <laughs> but his justice couldn't be satisfied with just a statement. Even from God himself, he couldn't just make a statement and satisfy justice. Justice required our salvation be through, through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Have you read the little children's book of fiction by C.S. Lewis called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? You remember that little book? I, I don't, not the movie. If you've, if you've only seen the movie, please take time to read the book. It's not a very long book. Very powerful little book. It's well worth reading, even if you're an adult. But he gives us a beautiful picture of the concept of redemption there. If you remember, Edmund was a traitor. Therefore, his life was forfeit to the White Witch. But Aslan, the great lion, purchased Edmund's redemption. You remember how he did it? He gave his own life in Edmund's place. And of course, C.S. Lewis intends for us to recognize that this is a type. It's a picture of what Christ has done for us on the cross. We've been redeemed. We need to make sure when we sing those old songs of redemption, there's some wonderful old songs of redemption. We need to make sure we understand what we're singing and think about it. Remember this one? Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed by His infinite mercy. His child and forever I am. Redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed, redeemed. His child and forever I am. Isn't that an awesome song? And this one? I will sing of my Redeemer and His wondrous love to me. On the cruel cross He suffered from the curse to set me free. Sing, oh, sing of my Redeemer. With his blood he purchased me. On the cross he sealed my pardon, paid the debt, and made me free. <laughs> wow, these are awesome songs, guys. And when we sing them, we need to ask God, please, Lord, help me to grasp what I'm singing. He's our Redeemer. We've been redeemed. We have redemption through Jesus. Now, the effect of this wonderful redemption and propitiation is given in verse 24 also. We are justified. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Justified. You remember the old country preacher used to say, to be justified by God means it's justified never sinned. <laughs> and that's really good. His etymology may not be so good, but his theology is really, really good. By Christ's propitiating redemptive death on the cross, we are justified. So our sins are forgiven, yes, but justification means more than that. Not only are we forgiven, the word also means we are declared to be righteous. Again, so many, many people through the ages continuing today have tried and continue to try to become righteous by obeying God's law. But by now, hopefully, we've got it really well learned we know Paul's made it very clear. That's totally impossible. But now he says in verse 21, God's righteousness has been manifested. What mankind has sought through the centuries, a righteousness to satisfy God, 
It's possible now, and it's a gift. This is what thrilled Martin Luther so deeply and gave him assurance that he had not been able to find in the Roman Catholic Church and Roman Catholic teaching. He had been desperately trying to be righteous in his own power. And then the truth of verse 24 just burst upon Martin Luther like a bright, brilliant burst of shining light, being justified, being declared righteous as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. There's nothing more wonderful than this in the whole Bible, guys. Well, let's quickly read on to the end of the chapter. We don't need to say much about these verses. He's just underlying what he's already said, emphasizing it, piling up this truth. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? Well, it's excluded. But what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, of course, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So here at the end, he's making clear they understand. He's not saying the law is bad. He's not throwing the law overboard. The law is an incredible blessing from God. He's just saying the law was not given and it was never meant to do what so many Jews and so many non-Jews seem to think it can do. The law could never make us righteous. The law could never save us. But Jesus, the one to whom the law pointed all those centuries, Jesus could and does give us the gift of his righteousness. Jesus could and does save us when we put our faith in him. So we better thank God for the law. Oh, yes, absolutely, because he used it to help us see the truth about ourselves. But even more, we thank God most of all for Jesus, who actually can and does save us from our sins. So thank you, Father, for Jesus. Yes, thank you for your law, Lord. We thank you for everything you've done. Lord, we so often have tried to use our own brains to put things together in a way that's totally ridiculous and absurd and wrong. But Lord, when we look at your word and see your truth as you reveal it to us so clearly through Paul here, we do thank you for your law and for using it to help us realize how far short we've fallen, to help us understand what your standard is and how badly we've missed it and how desperately we need your mercy. And Lord, thank you for the amazing way you put all this together, planning from the very creation of the world, from the foundation of the world, that Jesus Christ would come and be slain so that your perfect justice could be satisfied as you forgave us of our sins, and yet you could be an awesome, merciful God. You could be both just and merciful. This is the only way, and we know that's true, and we thank you, and we praise you, and we pray you would help us to deeply understand what it means that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and that we have redemption in Jesus. He is our Redeemer, and that we are justified, declared to be righteous because of what he did for us on the cross through faith. It's amazing, Lord. We give you praise and glory and honor. Help us to do that better than we've ever done it before. In Jesus' name, amen.